0: Ani everybody, Ntishna Klaas, Miskawapokinikwe, Mikanakandodem, Hey everybody, Red Pipe Woman is my Ojibwe name and Leora Chatterson is my English name. My family is of the Turtle Clan and I live here in Ishpeming, Michigan. I'm one of your hosts for season two of Broken Lands, a podcast about truth-telling, racial reconciliation, and the examination of diverse contemporary activism. Broken Lands is produced by Together Here Ministries of the Northeastern Minnesota Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, in association with Walks Back Collective.
1: I'm your other co-host, Matthew Cobb. We offer these conversations as a free resource, so if you'd like to support us by becoming a Patreon member, please visit us at brokenlands.org. Also, follow us on the Broken Lands Facebook page or on our Instagram or Twitter accounts at Broken Lands Pod.
0: Wonderful. And welcome, Sarah. Uh, we are so happy that you were able to take time to visit with us tonight. It's um it's a really amazing um, opportunity to talk to you about these very expansive initiatives. And they have been... Um, overlooked for way too long. So I just want to say thank you so much for doing the work that you are doing and for creating these expansive teams that are dismantling the doctrine of discovery and um, bringing folks into the conversation. But I'd like to ask you, would you like to introduce yourself for our listeners?
2: Sure, you bet. My name is Sarah Augustine, and I'm the executive director of the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery and also the co-founder Um, My historical homeland is um, what in the territory that's now called Northern New Mexico. I consider myself to be a displaced person. That's a UN definition, a person that was um, a product of removal in the um, indigenous diaspora here in North America. And so I um, don't have tribal citizenship among the Tewa people, although I am claimed by my people. So I call myself a descendant because I don't have tribal status, but not because I don't meet the requirements. So that's just a a legal matter. Over the past 18 years, I've lived as a neighbor and a guest on the homelands of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation. My husband, Dan Peplow, and I I've worked with the Yakima Nation to restore those lands to the vision of the Fish and Wildlife Department um, among the Yakima people. So the reason I say that is to say that I have been in relationship with the land that I live on. I've had the great privilege of being able to be integrated in an ecosystem and to be relatives with all the different beings there in that place, including the water and the soil and the invisible ones in the soil, the microbes and the grasses and the standing green nation. I've learned to call the standing green nation and all the four-leggeds and the winged ones and the insect people, everybody there. And so what a privilege to be part of that healing land. And so, yeah, that's a little bit about me and who I
0: am. ahead. And within this podcast, we always try to bring a very human-based element to this work because sometimes it can be intimidating for folks who want to get involved, but they're not quite there. You know, they're in their learning phase. And so we always want to bring that back into that heart space. And so on a professional level, historians are able to disconnect themselves emotionally to become immersed in the material. Do you find yourself tapping into your historian mindset to take part in that emotional separation of your work?
2: So I come to the work um, in a variety of different ways, but very much as, as the descendant of my grandmother, whose little baby son was taken out of her arms in the hospital when, when she gave birth to him, uh, my father. And so I come to this work as a descendant of a people that have faced oppression as a result of being the target of indigenous removal on these lands for 500 years. And my life story is framed by that struggle. So I'm really clear about that. You know, my my relationship, the reason I became part of this work was because of that story, my human story and lived experience, not so much through an academic lens. In fact, I don't consider myself to be an academician, certainly not a historian. I'm a trained social scientist. That's what I was trained in. But in my academic work, what I mainly focused on is public health. And even within that public health, it is really the impacts on the bodies and communities of indigenous peoples. The, the resource extraction. So what is the impact of resource extraction on the bodies and the lives and communities and lifeways of Indigenous peoples? So for me, you know, I came to that work specifically in relationship with the Matawai people and the Wayana people um, and the Lacoño people in Suriname, South America. And so the stories, that is to say, the faces of those people and the hands and the bodies are the reason, those were the animating features for me to get involved in dismantling the doctrine of discovery. That is to say the body of law and policy that defines reality for indigenous peoples here in this land, but also around the world. And so I got involved because of the relationships I had with people. And I think one of the challenges in the work for me, Leora, has been um, when I'm in relationship with people in the dominant culture, They want to sort of dislocate that and say, oh, this is a thing that happened in the past, or this is a process that we should repent for that happened once. And for me, it's like, wait a minute, I'm a product of the doctrine of discovery. My entire life um, is a feature of that doctrine, which is a legal doctrine and also theological doctrine. And the lives of my people and my friends and all indigenous people that I now claim as my people are threatened by these systems of oppression. And um, I'm not in this to talk about ideas alone, but to to raise up my people. Hey, I mean, so this is about my life story and being able to share that in an authentic way for my children, and also to show up in a concrete, substantive way for my people. And that is showing up in the struggle for for justice.
1: The Rabbi Abraham Heschel used to do this teaching about um, spirit and matter, matter and spirit. He said, uh, matter without spirit is a corpse, and spirit without matter is a ghost. Do, do you see a lot of corpses and ghosts as you go around in the dominant culture?
2: That's interesting, Dr. Matthew. So for me, I think when we start getting into the empiricism and saying that we we experience reality through empiricism alone, then then we get into reductionism, right? Like trying to put things into bite-sized pieces and then examine it. We feel like if we could, if we could examine it one part at a time or one piece at a time, that we could define the whole thing. And that's a corpse, right? Because if you try and cut a system up into pieces, it's just a pile, You know what I mean? Like you can't cut up a human body and then say, oh, here's the pieces. And if we glue these back together, it'll be a person. It isn't, right? I mean, we're a a human person or any living being. And that goes from the subatomic level all the way to planets. These are intricate systems of life that are more than just the sum of the parts, right? It's a system. And so to me, the corpses are... what we do when we try to over rationalize uh, what we see in the world and that creates corpses because it's really depending on the empirical lens that if we can't see it taste it smell it touch it you know that's the only way to measure things can you see systems kind of but they're a little bit amorphous you know what i'm saying systems define reality for us systems of laws and policies define reality for us but I mean, is it bigger than a bread box? How big is a system? You know, how much does it weigh? How many systems fit on the head of the pen? <laughs> you know, it's it's not it's not that kind of a thing. So if you try and say, Oh, you know, empiricism, this focus on empiricism, which is really important for some things, it's not a good process for trying to capture systems because it is embedded in individualism. Right. It's it's embedded in individualism and sort of this individualistic mechanism for seeing reality or finding reality. So then the ghosts are kind of when we start thinking about concepts in some kind of level that is not um, grounded in human experience. So we start talking about, you know, philosophical concepts. I mean, I was in a conversation a couple of days ago, maybe a week ago. It was with a church group online, and um, there was a, it was a person there who was saying, well, you know, I'm not sure the doctrine of discovery, that the church needs to take responsibility for it because we've seen imperialism all over the world. It's not just a Christian concept. And like, that's a, that's a ghost right there. Because to me, the doctrine of discovery is not an abstract concept. It is a system of oppression at play for my people today. So what do I care about it outside of the impacts, the material impacts it has on myself and my people, myself, my family, my children, my grandchildren, my people. That's why I care about it. You know, I, I'm not interested in kind of having a philosophical debate up here because that's what you can do when your life is not at stake. When your life is at stake, you're not Arguing up here, like above, I'm like waving my hands around here, your listeners can't see, but above your head, you know, where you're having the big talk. Um, It's really grounded in the, the impacts on human beings and all life. And that's where I say, look, in our work in the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery, when we're talking, when we're working through campaigns and strategizing things, we are always boiling it down. What is the impact on the most vulnerable person in the situation?
0: I love the phrase that you use dismantling to rebuild
2: mm-hmm.
0: when referring to replacing the doctrine of discovery in the 21st century. In this very specific task, what advice would you give for a checks and balances process to ensure that this movement stays indigenously led?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I I don't have a lot of like out of the box answers for this. I think part of the reason, Leora, is because in the dominant culture here in the US, in this 21st century United States, thinking like our mindset here, it's always boiling down to individual action, when in fact, over our span as a species, over our lifespan as a species of human life, we have always worked and lived in collectives. This idea of individualism is really a fallacy, which is a fancy way of saying a fantasy. (laughs) It's not real truth, right? So, I'm always turning to the collective and saying, who are we collectively as a movement? You know, our movement is much bigger than one organization. It's much bigger than one idea. You know, any movement has to be beyond the imagination of one person. There's lots of different ways to work together and to act and to be creative. And how can we do that in 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 a coordinated way that's also organic? So, within the coalition, that's what the context I can speak to. We have a theory of action that includes two different things. One is the reality of Indigenous peoples as defined by Indigenous peoples and led by Indigenous peoples. Um, what the descendants of settlers and settlers can do is to come alongside and follow and to provide um, expertise and resources and all the things in the, the gravitas of their membership or their and their presence that's really important but indigenous peoples don't need any tips on what to do in indigenous peoples lands. they know all, all about that the descendants of settlers and i want to be really clear about this settlers and descendants of settlers are the beneficiaries of an unjust system you don't have to do anything if you're a settler or a descendant of a settler to make the system work for you it takes action to not participate in the system and so for settlers and descendants of settlers There's work to do there too, and that is not to tell Indigenous people what to do or to come up with great ideas for Indigenous people, but it is to dismantle systems that are created and controlled by a colonial process. And you don't need permission from Indigenous people to do that. If there are laws and policies at the state level, the federal level, that are damaging to Indigenous people, that are causing suffering for Indigenous peoples, You do not need to be in relationship with an indigenous person to take action on that. You have the ability and the self-determination to do that, whoever you are. Concerning apartheid and the movement and apartheid, you did not need to know a Black South African to know that apartheid was wrong or to be an activist to oppose it. Anybody can know that (laughs) and participate in that. So in, in the coalition, we follow the leadership of indigenous peoples in indigenous movements. And there is work to do for white people in dismantling the systems that are designed to serve them. And they are the world expert in that. You don't need to find some kind of vulnerable person and try and prop them up and say, okay, tell us what to do. Like, So for example, myself, over a couple of decades, I've been working at reform at the international level within the Inter-American Development Bank. And also um, for the Organization of American States and the human rights system. For those people who are system experts, attorneys, and people who know how to do that stuff, you can do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's possible that is work for you to do. You don't need to go find somebody to lead it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's apparent that these systems are oppressive, (laughs) and they create oppression, and it's okay to oppose it. And so in the coalition, we do both. We say there is work that is the work of indigenous people, and we follow. And there is the work that is the work of the church. And that's the church's work to do. And we don't try and get someone else to come in and fill in to do that for the church.
0: I think you answered that perfectly. (laughs) Thank you. So as co-founder and executive director of the coalition to dismantle the doctrine of discovery, can you tell us what the involvement from religious leadership is like across America right now? You mean in the coalition? With any kind of, dis, well, I should say, with the, the dismantling work, how are they doing their part to educate themselves or become educated and then follow through and implement actual dismantling? Where are they?
2: This is so tricky. I'm I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is tricky ground. Is you tricky. invited me on to tricky ground your sister. It's tricky. Okay. Very tricky. So I'm going to say, I, I'm going to start with... Um, with Jesus' radical call to humans. Um, Jesus said in chapter four, the spirit of God is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What's the good news? He says there's four four things. Release for the prisoner. He doesn't say for the prisoner that's worthy that we don't deem worthy, the prisoner who um, was wrongly accused. No, no, he says release for the prisoner. He said, "Freedom for the oppressed, not the oppressed that we deem worthy; those people that we think um, are deserving." He says, "Freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind." I notice Jesus here doesn't cite any other validity. He doesn't say, you know, he doesn't then list all the medical issues, which leads me to think this is symbolic for something. So, if the good news is for the poor, what the people who are not poor get is sight, right? They're not; they may be blind to. Systems of oppression, because the systems of oppression serve them. What do they get to have? Sight, the ability to see reality as it is. And finally, he says, and the announcement, good news, number four, the announcement of the year of our Lord's favor, which is Jubilee, the Jubilee year. So in the cosmology of his people, Jesus' people, there was to be a Jubilee year every 49th year, where you hit the reset button. All the prisoners are released. All the land is returned to its original caretakers. All the debts are forgiven in the Jubilee year, every 49 years for one year. The land is given follow rest. So he's saying, and then Jesus says, today in your hearing, this prophecy is fulfilled. So he said, this is his mandate. This is what I've come to do. I've come to do this. Freedom for the oppressed. So I guess I want to ask, how is the church doing? Is it doing those things? Is the church showing up and saying, uh, we demand freedom for the oppressed. That's what we're on this earth to do because we are followers of Jesus. Are they saying we are here to uh, to embrace reality and we are willing to, to learn and take in information from people that are on the margin so that we can see and be in good relationship with creation? Is the church saying, uh, we are here to announce the year of our Lord's favor, Jubilee. Because if the answer is no, then my answer is no.
0: Out of the realm of religious leadership, would you be able to tell our listeners what this work looks like from the perspective of other organizations, such as the United Nations, or as you mentioned already, the Organization of American States Inter-American Commission on Human Rights?
2: Yeah. So um, in the coalition, we are really trying to do um, everything at once We're trying to show up and to bring our Christian relatives to these struggles um, as we see them. At the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, um, one of the challenges of the Organization of American States is the Inter-American Development Bank has the same member states as the Human Rights Mechanism. In the bylaws of the Organization of American States, you can't sue the Inter-American Development Bank. So this Inter-American Development Bank is making loans and projects to go into the lands of indigenous peoples and to make those lands available for economic development, which is another way of saying resource extraction. So if you take these states that are doing this to court, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, that's a human rights mechanism. It's advisory in nature only, there's really no authority there because it's the same member states that are part of both, right? So a nation like the United States who is participating in the, in the bank and is also partici- participating in the human rights mechanism, it's not going to hold itself accountable, eh? It's just, that's not in its best interest to do that. And there's no other authority to come in and actually hold any of these mechanisms accountable because all of these systems are designed for resource extraction. That's what they're designed to do. That's the doctrine of discovery. And so we need a new legal mechanism to actually hold financial systems accountable. It's completely illegal to come into Indigenous people's lands, take everything that they have, displace them, pollute their bodies, pollute their communities. That's not illegal. That's absolutely legal. And all of these mechanisms are in place to make that possible. And that cannot be because it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's okay. So when we're showing up and advocating at that level, at the UN level in Geneva, in New York, what we're doing is advocating for systems change. The UN is designed to create a mechanism for member states to talk to each other. So a state is a country. So um, the UN creates the space for countries to talk to each other There is no mechanism for an impacted community, a community of indigenous people who are impacted by the laws of extraction, these laws that are made that make extraction possible, mining, oil exploration, they make all of that possible. There's no mechanism for a community to come forward and say, our own state is abusing us. There's no way. You have to go through your own member states. So you can see there's no solution here for ordinary people who are just being displaced and oppressed by the laws that are in place. So that's what we're doing. We're showing up to say, we need systems change here. You know, I was actually seeking meetings with individual commissioners and saying, I am asking of you, I'm begging of you, I'm demanding of you to write new jurisprudence. We have to imagine another way to do that. Um, we're we're trying to dismantle, to rebuild. We also have to hold in our hearts and our minds and imagine the world we want to live in. We Can't just be doing reform in a system that was created with a colonial logic. We also have to be able to imagine together something else. What is that something else and build that.
0: Absolutely. Oh. So I have a, a question about um, one specific denomination. Have there been many like official action items that that you've seen from the Roman Catholic churches since the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery from the Vatican?
2: Because
0: I know eyes are on them, right, on both localized levels, but also with the USCCB to do either these grand gestures or um, commit to ongoing initiatives, but that gets more difficult when it gets to these localized churches. So have you seen anything um, within the workings of Action Items to, to show or to back up that repudiation?
2: So I am not Catholic and really engaged uh, with the Catholic church institutions much. Um, and with the exception of the sisters religious we have a collaborative with nuns and nuns um so that, so when I say sisters religious I mean nuns and they tend to be the most activist and willing to take risks and I also want to say here that nuns are, or um, orders of nuns are independent of the institutional Catholic Church a lot of people don't know that they have their own money and they do their own they do their own thing so they tend to be the most activist but I do want to say this about the Catholic Church they are this single largest private landowner on earth, the largest private landowner on earth is the Catholic Church. That's why their repudiation statement was so like mild, you know what I mean? And, and legalistic. They were not going to take responsibility in their statement for the colonial story because legally they don't want to be accountable for that. The Catholic Church has the opportunity to do massive land back if they chose to do that. They own land all over the world. They have more land than any other entity on earth except in a government.
1: Leora, um, the uh, question that you just asked uh, about that uh, that organization, there's still um, an imperial force on the planet. They just hide behind the cloak of the papacy. So in the risk of being very much on the chopping block of folks that want to cancel folks these days. Um, It's a really really delicate issue and so I'm going to follow up Leora your question and go with where Sarah was headed with the land ownership and stuff and go a little bit further if you got time Sarah I haven't heard that that call for the keys yet hey where the key? (laughs) but you know St. Peter had the keys. Jesus gave him the keys so I'm going to stick with the keys here but Leora opened up that, and I, and I just got really uncomfortable. I was like, oh, man, oh, man, she's going there. i um, <laughs> glad you did, Leora. I know the work you're doing and all the work is so powerful, and I know, what's, I know what's behind that question. And this, the papal bulls, there's three of them that sit there, right? And if you revoke those three, you basically take away ownership. The whole concept of ownership is stripped from most world economies, because it rests on that papal bull. Even to this day, it's like, it's mind boggling. My question is, is is there a way for folks like myself who are caught as a beneficiary of a dominant system, a a white supremacist, crypto-colonist culture? If we're not announcing the year of Jubilee, where there's gonna be a bunch of asset management transfers and land back and everything overnight, we start to just make these incremental changes in our own lives. So when when uh Leora was asking earlier about the dismantling work, I thought of this uh instead of an annunciation or announcing this year of Jubilee, maybe we should start renouncing. I'm talking about folks like me that are white settler descendants, like renouncing our participation in a in a system and, and being in solidarity with folks. You said that in the coalition work. That's that's the work of folks that want to support. And so when it comes to asset management in particular and land holdings, property is how the dominant culture refers to land. The podcast is called Broken Lands for a reason, right? Because they've been broken up by this concept of ownership, proprietorship. You can commodify the land. Um, And in risk of being a corpse or a ghost myself, I want to ask this question as a human. And um, I have to give a story Um, there's a man in the desert and he's got two blankets on his shoulders and the sun's setting and this other man approaches and he doesn't have any blankets. And the sun sets and the man says, you have a spare blanket. It's going to be cold tonight. And the man says, no, I just have this one. And he walks right past him. And in the nighttime, that man has a dream and he's caught underneath a rock and he's pinned there and he can't get, get out. He's just completely stuck and when he wakes in the morning he's haunted by this keeping of the two blankets and not sharing it with the the man he met on the path and so i feel that sometimes in my life i got two blankets and one of them needs to come off or i have two pieces of property you know there's a form of renunciation in my in my story i think
2: and there's there are many ways i can respond to that and i think the idea of land ownership is a very strange idea it's a new idea it's not the way we've lived most of our lives as a species, as humans. One of the challenges I think about, if you forgive me for a minute, talking about the posture of the Christian church, and I, I mean writ large, like the big church, capital C, has been an investment in this idea of charity. And by charity, I mean I am going to work hard because I'm smart and thrifty, or we as institutions are smart and thrifty. And we're going to do what we need to do to provision ourselves according to our own standards, based on a standard in our own minds. And then if we have a little bit left over, we will take that little bit and give it to the less fortunate. And this system of charity reinforces power imbalance. It's not meant to balance power. It's it's meant to reinforce this imbalance of power and to come up with an ideological alibi or a justification for why it's right and good that this institution should have so much more than everybody else. Balancing power is what true solidarity is all about. Balancing power is when those people who have power cross the line and they put their lives and their bodies and their resources next to the people that are oppressed. And they say, I'm with you. We are interdependent in the system, in these systems of life, right? We're part of these interlinking systems of life And we're interdependent and there are people who are born into the dominant culture and who have power who can see that. A sight for the blind, right? And they're able to say, I'm going to take this and balance power by crossing the line. And I'm going to be in solidarity with you. This is completely counter to the dominant culture that says, look, in order for, for me to help you, I need to provision myself first. I need to make sure all my needs are met. I need to make sure that I am going to have a healthy 401k. I need to make sure that I have a paid off decent home. I need to make sure that uh, that I have enough to put my kids through college and that I'm gonna have a comfortable retirement so I'm not a burden on anybody. And at the end of all of that, if there's anything left over, I might help it, help out a little bit and then I should be rewarded for that. And that's, that is, there's a word for that from my point of view and it's sin. When we are part of creation that is so out of balance, the only action that can be taken is to balance that power by standing with the oppressed. And that is, that is not by saying, I'll take care of myself first. If I have anything left over, I'll help you. That is acknowledging reality, which is that we are all at risk until none of us are at risk. I will believe in your solidarity when your body is next to my body. When our bodies are side by side together in this struggle, then I know we are relatives. Until then, keep your symbolic Gestures. I'm not interested in (laughs) in that. You know, right now, this very day, we're working with community peacemaker teams and training volunteers from across the country to stand with the stronghold Apache at Oak Flat in the impending Um, land transfer. So we are training volunteers from across the country to, to be there. 24 hour coverage. We're training dozens of us to be there so that we can be there in fact. And we're working at the legal level too. We're writing, we've written amicus briefs. So their religious freedom case, we've recruited denominations to do that, to show up and um, struggle for religious freedom for um, the San Carlos Apache. And we're willing to put our bodies there too because that's what real solidarity is. It is saying, we find common cause together because your survival is my survival. That's not charity, that is reality. That is what it means to be a sibling. We're all in it together. We're in a closed system of mutual dependence. And we have to acknowledge that.
1: It, it sounds like a, a call to collective suffering for transformation of that suffering is is what I hear.
2: I love that. Thank you. You mentioned
0: nuns and nuns earlier, which I think they are fantastic. I love hearing. I loved when I heard about that. But some of our listeners may not be familiar. Would
2: you be able to tell us a little more about them? Yes. Yeah, so I love nuns and nuns. It's, it, it's nuns, N-U-N-S, which is the Sisters Religious. Um, who are joining together with nuns, N-O-N-E-S. These are mainly young people who are non-religious, and they're joining together because the sisters religious um, are aging. So there aren't enough new people joining the orders to replace the elders. And they decided, we don't have to just be working with uh, with other religious people. If young people are non-religious, let's work with them anyway. <laughs> and they formed this amazing collaborative, nuns and nuns, and they have a Land Back um, initiative. And we are in coalition with them in that Land Back initiative. Really, what we're doing in the coalition is bringing Christians to that work. We're trying to work with Christians at the institutional level, at the individual level, at the regional level, to return land. And to to demonstrate through what nuns and nuns have done how to do that in a good way.
0: Be great, thank you.
1: I'm uh, I'm really interested in that. There is something in there about the Apache stronghold. Um, where is that, and and how can people put their their skin in the game and 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 have their uh, their solidarity brought up a notch?
2: Yeah. So we've been collaborating with. Um, Stronghold Apache for I want to say over five years we've been working in relationship and collaboration really joining um, our Apache brothers and sisters in the struggle to defend Oak Flat and Mount Graham those sacred places and so what I want to invite your listeners to do is to consider joining the coalition to dismantle the doctrine of discovery anybody can You don't have to have any special um, skills um, to do that. Um, It's going to take all of us together. And I want to tell you a point of entry. If you go to our website, which is dismantlediscovery.org, there's a calendar of events and you can sign up to go to our coffee hour, which is in the fourth Wednesday of the month. So it's actually tomorrow morning. It's on a Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time. Anybody can go to the coffee hour. That's a great entry point. We also um, do a coalition orientation once a month on a Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific time. But we recognize while we recruit individual volunteers and there are volunteers coming all the time to us. Um, At the same time, we work and live collectively. So we really love to work with congregations and at the congregational level where we're organizing people within the church to accompany indigenous people and indigenous people's movements. And I wanna be really clear about this. We have not worked historically with indigenous Christians. We have worked with indigenous peoples regardless of their faith tradition. And typically that is indigenous people who are following their own faith tradition. There is no faith requirement is my point. And we are calling on the Christian church to follow the leadership of indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples movements. And anybody can do that. Anybody can join. We know for a fact that what we're working for is transformation. Um, the creator has um, has promised to us, restoration for all creation. The systems we have now are created by collectives and we will dismantle the system and create the next with collectives.
0: Is there anything else that we didn't touch upon that you wanted to bring up?
2: Oh gosh, thank you. That's a very generous question. There's so much that we do in the coalition Two things we do. One is we work on laws and policies. We do that at every level. We accompany Indigenous peoples and we also ourselves work on law and policy reform because we know that we can't change the culture without changing laws and policies. And we also work on um, cultural change. We have a whole cultural change division of working groups because we know we can't change laws and policy without changing the culture. So I want to tell you about some of the creative things that we do too in the coalition. We have a group that is just dedicated to making music. They're called the Playlist um, Team. We have a team that's creating a board game. Why? Because they have the energy and they have the expertise and the skill to do that. For us, we believe we can make a board game and market it to the whole United States, and that's going to make an impact. Terrific. So we support that. We have a team that is our prayer team. They pray for the movement. They pray for the activists within us. They pray for all of our, our campaigns. We produced a play. We produced a documentary. Um, we have a traveling exhibit, it's a timeline, I think it's six col- or it's six panels, big um, display that travels around the country to different congregations talking about the timeline of colonization from the perspective of the church and the perspective of indigenous peoples in the US. We do a whole host of creative things because we know there is not one linear answer. There's not a five-year plan. And then the last thing I would say is that we recognize the coalition that we are working across generations. I may not live to see the outcome of what we're doing now. I am the descendant of the ones that came before me and I'm alive now and I have the ability to create and shape reality for the ones that come after. And that's my responsibility to do that. And so what will the movement be like in a hundred years? I don't know that, but I know that I have to work now to resource the people that are going to be coming right behind me, identify young leaders, give them what they need, and then we trust them to go forward into the next phase. We know that we're not going to see substantive systems change maybe in our lifetime. I'm 50 years old. If I'm blessed, I'll get to live to be 100, and maybe I'll get to see the halfway point. But I'm not working for the ends so that I can say, oh, I accomplished that, look at that, I did that. Sarah Augustine, look, there's my name, I did that thing. No, I'm working and struggling for the life of my people. And that means, even though I might not see the direct benefit to myself in this lifetime, I am working to build the scaffolding for the next young ones to come in and build onto that. That is our shared vision.
0: Miigwech, thank you so much. I think I smiled during that entire podcast.
2: <laughs> well, I appreciate you Lura and all the life energy that you give for the survival of our people and for the healing of our people. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Wopida. Thank you for joining us. You can visit us at brokenlands.org to find out how you can become a supporting member of this podcast. Also, follow us on our Facebook page
2: or on Instagram, Twitter, at BrokenLandsPod.